drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And this week on the Quarterdeck, we're going to continue with our book. With the 1st Marine Division in 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. And we're going to talk about the command and control. How is the division planning on maintaining that command and that control throughout its operations as soon as they left Kuwait and headed into Iraq, making their way all the way into Baghdad? In our hero highlights this week, we're going to take a look at Corporal Anthony Peter D'Amato, United States Marine Corps, a Medal of Honor recipient who was born March 28th of 1922 in Shindoha, Pennsylvania. The Quarterdeck. I am the flag of the United States of America. My name is Old Glory. I fly atop the world's tallest buildings. I stand watch in America's halls of justice. I fly majestically over great institutes of learning. I stand guard with the greatest military power in the world. Look up and see me. I stand for peace, honor, truth, and justice. I stand for freedom. I am confident. I am arrogant. I am proud. When I am flown with my fellow banners, my head is a little higher, my colors a little truer. I bow to no one. I am recognized all over the world. I am worshipped. I am saluted. I am respected. I am revered. I am loved. And I am feared. I have fought every battle and every war more than 200 years. Gettysburg, Shiloh, Appomattox, San Juan Hill, the trenches of France, the Argonne Forest, Anzio, Rome, the beaches of Normandy, the deserts of Africa, the cane fields of the Philippines, the rice paddies and jungles of Guam, Okinawa, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and a score of places long forgotten by all but those who were there with me. I was there. I led my Marines. I followed them. I watched over them. They loved me. I was on a small hill in Iwo Jima. I was dirty, battle-worn, and tired, but my Marines cheered me, and I was proud. I have been soiled, burned, torn, and trampled on the streets of countries I have helped set free. It does not hurt, for I am invincible. I have been soiled, burned, torn, and trampled on the streets of my country. And when it is by those whom I have served in battle, it hurts, but I shall overcome. For I am strong. I have slipped the bonds of earth and stand watch over the uncharted new frontiers of space. From my vantage point on the moon, I have been a silent witness to all America's finest hours. But my finest hour comes when I am torn into strips to be used 
for bandages for my wounded comrades on the field of battle, when I fly at half-mast to honor my Marines, and when I lie in the trembling arms of a grieving mother at the graveside of her fallen son. I am proud. My name is Old Glory. Dear God, long may I wave. No matter how many times I've actually listened to that poem, whether I've said it myself or I've heard other people actually recite it to me, it reminds me of why I decided to become a United States citizen here in the United States of America. I don't know, for a lot of people, it's different because how you end up here in the United States. For me, I am an immigrant, and that's something that I am proud of because I know where my family originally came from, and now look where we are today. I mean, for me, it was simply easy for me to decide to serve in the service. My father served in the Army, as many of you guys know, and I've talked about you know his time in the Army for many, many different episodes that we talked about. But today I was thinking, everything that I learned growing up, whether I believe was something that I needed to do or didn't really agree with the rules, the regulations or things that were going on throughout the house at that time. I mean, everybody knows that we are rebellious as teenagers and we basically don't agree with anything that's going on in our household or the rules. And back then as a teenager, I really had no idea exactly what they meant or why they were even there. <laughs> I mean, if we all think about it, remember our teenage years and the years that we were growing up in our house before we turned the age of 18 and we decided to move on and do whatever we wanted to do. For me, it was simple. It was easy because I decided that I wanted to enlist in the service, but not just any service. It had to be something that was challenging, something that was going to mean something that I was going to allow me to actually be able to do the best that I can possibly do. And even though I thought about all kinds of different services, I thought about enlisting in the Army because there was a program that I could actually go to basic training in the summer, come back, finish my senior year of high school, and then go off and go to my MOS training and so forth like that. So I thought about doing that. But then I met the Marine Corps recruiter there at my school. And I know I talked about him before, you know, Gunnery Sergeant Tracy Freeman. I'm pretty sure, I think I heard that he retired as a Master Sergeant or a Master Gunnery Sergeant. He was actually a career recruiter that ended up staying out there recruiting people in the Marine Corps. But ever since that day, that's what kind of made up my mind for me to be able to enlist into the Marine Corps and actually become a United States Marine. But that's not the reason that I bring this up. As an American U.S. citizen, back in the days, you know, when I became a United States citizen, and we joked around a lot in the Marine Corps, and we always talked about how I went through the whole freaking debunderization process. <laughs> now, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not saying that in a negative way or anything like that. There's all kinds of different nicknames or things that Hispanic people were called in the past. And that is just a joke that we, as Latino Marines, we had with each other. And it didn't mean anything bad. So it wasn't something that we thought of negatively or anything like that. But when I decided to actually become a U.S. citizen was back in 2008. Now, I had gone through the whole process of becoming a U.S. citizen because, you know, I've been in the service for almost 12 or 13 years at that time. Actually, shoot, that's in 2008. Man, that's a long time. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I got to count in my fingers. You guys believe that? Seven years before I retired out of the active duty service. So that whole entire time I had been in the Marine Corps, 
still as a resident alien and never really thought about becoming a United States citizen. It wasn't until one of my deployments that I was in in Iraq at the time that I had applied for United States citizenship. And while I was in country, the whole entire process was getting put into place, the interviews, all that stuff and everything. But nothing had come of it when I was down there in Iraq. And it wasn't until I came back into stateside that I received a phone call saying that they wanted me to come in to go ahead and do the verbal test and everything with the representative of the Department of Defense for the naturalization. The problem with that was that they wanted me to go do the interview out there in Iraq. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. They wanted me to go back to Iraq in order to do that. So I had to tell them that I was no longer deployed. I was back in stateside. So then I had to go ahead and get it rescheduled, and I did that in San Diego. Now, for me, the naturalization process was fairly simple. You know, I've heard so many horror stories that people are having to memorize the whole entire study guide because they're going to ask you so many questions and all those things like that. And I did. I reviewed all the questions and things that I needed to do to make sure that I was able to answer any questions that maybe they were going to ask me in order to become that U.S. citizen. And, you know, lo and behold, I get there because I went in my alpha's uniform. I, I went in uniform. I wasn't going to go in civilian attire. So I went there and then they told me that, hey, these pictures that you have are too old. You need newer pictures. So I'm like, great. So they rescheduled my appointment for that afternoon. And I went out there in downtown San Diego in the gas lamp district, walking around in my alpha uniform, looking for a place for me to actually be able to take new passport pictures. And I finally did. I found some. And then I had a couple of hours to kill just waiting for my appointment to actually pop up to be able to actually speak with the agent that was going to conduct the interview. And to my surprise, when I got there, we went to the back and we were just kind of talking on the way there into the actual interview room. And he was asking me, you know, questions of where I was born and stuff like that. And, you know, how I, th what I thought about the last appointment that I went on and how it was and, you know, how long I've been in the service and things like that. And then we get inside and then he's like, okay, I'm going to ask you a couple questions and I want you to make sure you answer, you answer them. And I'm going to ask you to write down a couple of things on a piece of paper as well. I'm like, okay. First thing you asked me is, okay, what color is the sky? Now, me being a smart ass, I'm like, well, the sky can be any color you want it for me to be. If you tell me the sky is red, the sky is going to be red. If you tell me it's pink, it's pink. If it's purple, then it's purple. But outside, before I came inside here to talk to you today, it was actually kind of a bluish green color with a couple little clouds up in the sky. <laughs> the damn agent just started laughing. And he's like, okay, all right, I'll buy that. And then he wanted me to write down the sentence on a piece of paper. And if I remember correctly, all he says, I love to live in the United States. And I wrote that down and he looks at me like, okay, you're good. You're, you're, you pass, you're ready to go. And he's like, okay, he's like, you had a couple of choices. Like we're going to have a group ceremony for naturalization. That, but that's not going to be for like another three months that when it's going to be conducted, or we can do it right now here in the office, just with us. The only thing is you're not going to have a ceremony, but if we do it here by ourselves, then if you want to change your name or anything like that, then you're not going to be able to change your name. Now, for the longest time, my middle name was always Randy. And I never knew where the heck that name came from, but I came to find out later on in life that the reason that my dad named me that was because he had a friend that was in the army that had a baby. The baby's name was Randy, and something happened, and the baby passed away. So my dad decided to tell him that when he had his son, he would name him that name. So that's how I ended up with that name. But I've always thought about, you know, okay, hello, I'm, I'm Mexican, I'm Hispanic. Why the heck do I have a middle name? Not too many Hispanics that I know of have actual middle names. It's just a first and a last name. So I thought about changing it, but then when he told me that, I was like, okay, you know what, whatever it is, I'll leave my name the way it is, and I don't care, I'll live with it for the rest of my life, and that is going to be that. 
So we did that, got the naturalization process going, and I became a United States citizen. Now, it's not that I, I, don't, I forgot or don't care about where I was born or where I came from because my blood will always be in Mexico where I was born and where I was raised. But now I am also a United States citizen. Now, in my house here, we have an American flag flying outside in my house 24 hours a day. I have a light shining on it, so when it's dark outside, the flag was always lit and everybody can always see my flag flying outside. Now, I've had some people that I ran into out in the community and things like that that have sometimes negative things to say. They get upset because I've served in the military, and I am of Mexican and Hispanic descent. Almost like if they're saying that I'm some kind of traitor, that I decided to serve this country, and blah, blah, blah. Honestly, I care less. It doesn't mean a damn thing to me what they say. Uh, it doesn't hurt my feelings, whatever. It's their opinion. They do what they got to do. I did what I had to do because I wanted to ensure that we had the liberties and the rights that we have today, and they continue to move forward, especially for my kids and grandkids for the future to make sure that they're there. So I wanted to fight for the freedoms of this country that allowed me to come here, become a United States citizen, and actually allow me to do things and live that great American dream as they call it. That was my goal. And that's why I decided to do that. But I just didn't understand why it took me forever. It took me that long of actually being on active duty to actually sit there and I finally decide to do that. But I did. I became a United States citizen and never, ever going to regret it because this country has done so much for me. So the little that I could do for this country and the citizens of this great nation is the least that I could do. So that is why every time that I hear that poem, Full Glory, it's amazing the feeling that you can feel in the pride that you have because of what it says. I mean, look, old glory has flown everywhere. It's been torn. It's been battered. It's been stepped on by all kinds of people everywhere throughout the world and even here in the United States of America. That is one thing that, you know, personally, I don't understand you know, why people do that stuff in this great nation that they live in. But, you know, they have the right freedom of speech and so forth and things like that. And, oh, well, it is what it is. I can't really do nothing about it. That's my opinion. And I leave it at that. You guys know that I don't like getting into politics. I don't like getting into all kinds of crazy stuff like that. I simply just want to go ahead and talk about Marine Corps stuff, patriotism, and things that we actually believe as Marines as service members, the things that we kind of believe in and the things that we want to kind of share. I know that for me, when I first started this podcast, you know, a year or two ago when I actually started, I don't even know, I lost track of time, how long it's been that I've been actually conducting this podcast, but it's been a while. It's been a long time that I do that. And to me, it's kind of like a way of venting, kind of a way of relating to my Marines, my active duty service members, retirees, and so forth, and then be able to actually share stories, stories with you guys about being on active duty, stories about the things that we did while we were on active duty. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about all kinds of things. We were talking about things about being on active duty. We were talking about actually stories of things that we did when we were in the service together. And we had a long conversation. And this Marine is one of three brothers that I came to know in the Marine Corps because of the Marine Corps. His older brother, who I consider to be my best friend, man, we've known each other since we were both together in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, back in 1995. We're down there in Oklahoma together, and we were going through our training to become artillerymen. 
So I've known him since then. So fast forward two decades of us actually serving in active duty service and we still communicate with each other and we still talk to each other. Throughout that time that he was in the service, his younger brother came into the Marine Corps. He also was an artilleryman, a fellow 0811, a cannon cocker. We were there. We shared that bond. It was later on, a couple of years later, that then again, his youngest brother enlisted into the Marine Corps as well. Now, he wasn't in the artillery community. He was in the infantry community. But then we had that connection of brotherhood in being in the Marine Corps. And up until this day, we still communicate every single year, especially on our birthdays. We call each other on our birthdays. Yesterday, I was on the phone with uh, my good friend, Sergeant Jose Saldivar Lopez, which was his birthday yesterday. So a belated happy birthday to you, my friend, again. And I want to share with everybody out here listening to me. And if you're listening, happy birthday, my brother. But we were talking about a lot of things from uh, the past, about being a Marine, being stationed in 29 Palms, conducting all the desert fire exercises, the training exercises. And most importantly, what it was that we talked about actually deploying when we went to Iraq. And that's a good thing, you know, that we relate to because we're able to share that connection of things that we were part of and that we did while we were in our active duty service. Now, in the segment that we talk about in the podcast, when we start, we were reading about the 1st Marine Division and the way that it headed into Iraq in 2003, it ties that in because, you know, we were there. We were physically there doing all these things that the division was doing when they were there in Iraq. And it's just the way that it goes because Marines stay in their MOS. We go off and do B billets or whatever we're doing, but we come back to our MOS. Now, he wasn't there for the initial invasion in 2003. Let me correct myself, not invasion, the liberation of the people of Iraq. When we went there, his older brother, Mario and I, we were there in 2003 with the division when we initially went into Iraq. He later on went in for the battles in Ramadi, Fallujah, and all those events once he came back from his B-billet and actually headed there as well. So there's a lot of history and a lot of things that we share in common and that we share together that we bond with throughout the years, not only as artillerymen, but as fellow Marines. And later on in one of these episodes coming up, and we're going to get him here on the show to be a guest, to be able to talk about his career, my career, and the shenanigans and craziness of things that we did while we were on active duty service. <laughs> so I know that I look forward to actually having him on the show, and I'll go ahead and do an update later on and do a special presentation and let everybody know once he will be on the show so we can have him on there and be able to tell his stories of some of the things that we did while we were on active duty service. So with that being said, you know, we got to remember and understand that the friendships and the bonds that we as Marines, as service members, hell, as Americans, not that, the connections that we make with individuals, you know, they're important because it is good to be able to have acquaintances, friends, brothers, sisters from active duty service that you're going to maintain contact with because you never know. You're going to be able to relate with certain things and especially when it comes time to actually get out of the service. There's times and places where you're going to want to be able to communicate with those individuals that actually were there in certain events that happened with you while you were still on active duty service. And that's one of the things that I can tell you guys that, especially with both of these brothers, any of the younger brother, you know, that connection is there. They're, they by far are considered to be my brothers that I've had from another mother because that's just the kind of relationship and the bond that we have together. Because we've shared so many years, so many ups, so many downs, 
together and it helps to keep us sane so we understand exactly what we are going to be dealing with and what we are doing because that's something that we want to carry on for the rest of our lives. And yes, I know you guys are thinking before you guys, you guys forget my two friends, the brothers, the older and the younger brother. <laughs> yes, they were two. They were two also demeanorized. <laughs> so they became United States citizens. And I think it was because of Jose Sergeant Saldivar Lopez that I became a U.S. citizen because he went through the whole entire process of doing that as well. And, you know, he kind of told me, like, what the hell are you waiting on? What are you waiting for to actually become a United States citizen? So that is why I went through the whole entire process. And, you know, I don't regret it one single bit at all whatsoever. And that is something that I'm going to go ahead and ensure that is passed down the rest of my family. Because we need, we need to be proud. We need to be proud of the nation that we live in. I'm never going to forget the years and the time that I spent in Mexico and the history and everything that is there because I still have family that lives over there in Mexico. However, I'm a United States citizen. I live in the United States of America, so I'm not going to be flying a Mexican flag outside of my house. Can I fly both? Yes, of course I can. However, my United States flag will always be higher than any other flag that I'm flying outside at the time. That's why usually on my flagpole, I always have the American flag and a United States Marine Corps flag underneath it. But it's always underneath the American flag. I would never, ever put it on top of the flag of the United States of America because, that, first of all, that is just disrespectful. And it's not the etiquette that you have whenever you're flying your colors or showing the flag in your home of residence, your office, your home, wherever. So it's safe to say that we got to remember exactly, you know, where we are. The freedoms, the rights, and everything else that we have because of the great nation that we live in. And let's not forget the service members, the men and women that are out there doing the things that they do on a daily basis to ensure that we continue to have those rights, those freedoms that we're having here in our home, here in the United States of America. The Quarter Deck is brought to you by Miguel Science Photography. From the beginning of your family to the first birthday and beyond, whether it's a retirement or a Marine Corps ball, Miguel Science Photography is there to make memories that will last a lifetime. Miguel Science Photography is a certified veteran-owned business. Contact them at miguelsciencephotography.com. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Now that the 1st Marine Division had actually conducted the rehearsals with the supply, the CSSG, and all things that were put into place, now it's time to start taking a look at the command and control aspect of the whole entire operation. How was this actually going to work? And that is what we're going to get into this week in our reading with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003. No greater friend, no worst enemy. The first measure effort of the CG-6 was to negotiate the allocation of the Marine Expeditionary Brigade Command element equipment on board the ships of the Epsron 1 and 2. The division needed the unallocated gear. There were no MEB command elements to provide redundant long line communications over extended distances and multiple camps. The Deputy G6, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Barton, attended the conference and was able to have 26 additional communication vehicles assigned to the division overcoming many of the most critical communication efficiencies. This war proved what the division's communicators had known for years, that a Marine division's peacetime equipment allowance would not support divisional combat operations. The requirement to support multiple CPs, a division support area, LSA, CONUS Space Forces, 
liaison officers, and other add-on communications requirements aggravated the already tenuous communications, epipage, and manning situation. As communication requirements were refined, it was clear that the G6 and the Headquarters Battalion's communications company manning levels were not adequate either. It was necessary to support the CG's jump CP, Division's forward CP, Division's main CP, and the Division's support area, or the DSA. By also having personnel support at Camp Pendleton to support reachback capabilities. With the superb assistance of the G1, the G6 began the process of identifying reserve augmentation requirements to include personal equipment and support from the 4th Marine Division's communications company. Concurrently, the process of requesting augmentation for some key specialty personnel was begun. Despite the G1's constant efforts, it was not until 15 February that Major Tom Sobey was temporarily assigned to the division as a data officer. Unfortunately, a data chief and technical controllers were never assigned. Had it not been for the last-minute augmentation by the 4th Marine Division Communications Company personnel and equipment, the division's communicators would not have been able to support many of the division's communication requirements in combat. As always, the reserve marines came through like champions, once the systems finally authorized their mobilization and deployment. The division received a number of new communication technologies just prior to deploying for combat. These systems, though appreciated, arrived at the divisions with little training, logistics, or employment concepts. Some arrived only days before the division crossed the line of departure, leaving barely enough time to find room on already packed vehicles and scant time for integration. The MDACT and the Army's Blue Force Tracker were two new technologies that provided position location information, or PLI. This was an operational assist in order to provide friendly blue tracking and C2PC which provided commanders a common operational picture or COP, these two systems automatically provide 10-digit precision information to the COP from vehicles with the equipment installed. I can tell you that these devices, I remember when they installed them in our vehicles when we were down there in Kuwait. Now, not every vehicle got one of these inside of them. I know that in our battery, the CO's vehicle, the XO's vehicle, and some of the two sergeant's vehicles had these capabilities put in there. Okay, so let me give you guys a visual. For those of you that really have no idea what exactly this Blue Force tracker is, imagine this. Imagine a computer back from the 1800s. <laughs> and I say 1800s because these things were bulky. It was like a supercharged GPS tracker, I guess you could say. But the maps were uploaded onto these things and you were able to see the other vehicles that had the same capabilities. You could see them on your little map area exactly where those vehicles were located at. And this was good because we can actually see where our allies were at and where they were heading or if they had a mission. And we as a unit also were able to put waypoints in there or checkpoints into our Blue Force tracker. 
this way, people would know exactly where we were and where we were going. Now, this was encrypted equipment, so nobody would be able to get access to it or be able to actually see where the vehicles were actually going at the time. Now, I don't know very much, or I'm not that technical savvy regarding internet hacking and all those things like that. So to the best of my knowledge, I guess those things weren't hackable and people weren't going to be able to just hack into those systems and be able to put like fake vehicles or whatever, or set different maps areas into the things that we had. So I don't know, but that is what the blue force tracker was. It had a keyboard, it had a screen and no, it was not touchscreen. At least the ones that we had were not touchscreen. So we didn't have those capabilities but they were there, but everything was push button that you had. So you had to push these buttons in order to actually get those things. So imagine a screen with a bunch of buttons on the left-hand side that were numbered in different things, a bunch of buttons on the bottom side that you were able to actually click on there. And every time you clicked it, it moved it a little bit to wherever you're trying to go. So especially dealing with like maps and stuff like that, you would be able to get those things uploaded and be able to see where you're going to there. But it was more of a headache to actually use this thing but eventually when it actually started working and we actually understood exactly what it did, then it made it a lot easier for us to actually have. So let's go ahead and continue on with our book here. The MDAC issued the line of sight or EPLRS radio for the communications path while the Blue Force Tracker was a satellite-based system that supported the PLI without terrain or distance concerns. So think about that. Radio waves have to basically go line of sight. Line of sight is the way that you're able to communicate. So if it's a very, very flat terrain, hey, that communication signal is going to go on for a long, long time. But add some mountains, some trees, some rough terrain on there that, you know, that the signal's not going to be able to go to, that it might have to go above it. Now you're going to look at having some retrans sites to be able to retransmit that from one point to the next. Whereas with these systems, with the Blue Force Tracker, that wasn't an issue. The Blue Force Tracker became the system of choice throughout the division not only for the PLI provided, but equally because it provided a capability to send pre-formatted and free text messages. Both systems were successfully and finally allowing for real-time automated input to the cop vice having the division staff fat-figured the positions of friendly units based upon out-of-date unit position reports. The division received and distributed 319 MDAC and 104 Blue Force trackers. Installation of the systems onto the division's vehicles and training of Marines on both systems continued into the end of February. The Global Broadcast System, or GBS, was a receive-only satellite system that was fielded to the division only one month prior to deploying from Camp Pendleton. This new capability allowed the receipt of CONUS-based cable work news services, CNN and Fox News, as they broadcast, which meant the division could receive real-time news services at its deployed location. This proved to be a good source of intelligence and kept the division's situational awareness high. The GBS was augmented with additional decryption equipment that allowed received a Predator UAV real-time imagery. Two Division Marines were trained in the basic setup and operations of the GBS ground station equipment. But the divisions required that augmentation of Corporal Nathan Dutton from 9th Communication Battalion to ensure that both the GBS and decryption equipment remained 
operational. As with all new systems that were pushed to the divisions, the training of Marines to install, operate, and maintain it was key to ensuring the reliability of the equipment. Gaining the requirement expertise on these systems often fell to the motivation and the intellect of the individual Marine. As training opportunities were limited, without the trained personnel borrowed from 9th Communications Battalion, GBS and other new systems would not have been such a success. Use of commercial video phones and video teleconferencing suites became more the norm than the expectation for both the division's main and forward CPs. Despite receiving the new equipment just prior to deploying and having limited training opportunities, it functioned very well. The Voice over Internet Protocol, or VoIP, phone was used far more than the video teleconferencing suite and provided reliable voice conferencing, service for up to nine locations simultaneously. Since the VoIP phone transmitted path was via dedicated SIPRNET bandwidth, it allowed for reliable connectivity over hundreds of miles in support of the geographically separated CPs. Although the expense of the rest of the users of the network, this new technology set a new standard for supporting commander and staff interaction. For over a year prior to deploying, the Division G6 had begun the process of pre-occurring and activating Iridium phones for the use throughout the division. Initially, the focus was to provide each commander with an Iridium phone. With the flexibility and reliability of these phones, it became apparent that many more were desired to provide an alternative means of voice communication throughout the division. Starting with 17, the division's appetite for Iridium phones grew until there were nearly 100 phones activating and supporting the division. At a total cost of more than $350,000 for these phones to include the secure calling capability, this represented a significant investment in communications by commanders throughout the division. The investment was well worth it when considering the successful use of these phones to prop up the divisional age tactical radio communication capabilities. The CG directed the division's information management officer, Lieutenant Colonel Norm Cooling, to eliminate all unnecessary reports required from subordinate commands and to streamline the remaining reporting requirements. To aid in this process, a web-based strategy was employed to increase the availability of information to all the division's units. In conjunction with the IMO, the G6 Information Systems section, led by Major Chris Nelson, First Lieutenant Space Hanneman, and Staff Sergeant Bradley Hall, developed a plan for the activation of the first ever deployed 1st Marine Division Secure Worldwide website. The effort put forth to procure the necessary hardware, train personnel, and coordinate the communications connectivity at the DSA was instrumental to the division's success in activating the site by 24 February. As web servers came online at the DSA, it became apparent to Major Sobey that an alternative was available to solve email forwarding problems experienced by key personnel. 
the CG, the ADC, the chief of staffs, etc., all those higher-ups, as they moved between divisional CPs. Using the skills of Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Edison, Staff Sergeant Hall, and with the support of Major Roger Stanfield, email servers were allocated to the DSA. These servers, for secure and not secure emails, used the same communication links as the web server, but allowed consistent and reliable email service for the entire division battle space, while simultaneously providing a single stable receipt point for email forwarding from Camp Pendleton. Email was critically important to the modern battlefield for commanders, key staff officers, and division CPs. This initiative was highly successful in meeting with operational imperative. Headquarters Battalion Communications Company tackled a series of like issues in preparation for combat operations. The number of liaison officers, full staff participation, and additional requirements for radio, telephone, and data supported threatened and overwhelmed the communication support available. The computer support network needed to be changed from a simple flat network to a more complicated series of virtual local area networks or VLANs, which took time for the Marines to learn. With practice and the implementation of new procedures, the communication company Marines were able to streamline setup and operation of the division's main CP to 6 hours rather than 12 to 24 hours it had previously taken. So with all this new technology, the Marine Corps, the division, was implementing all this new technology that was already out there but they never really thought about using it in a combat environment for the division to actually use now that they were heading into Iraq, leaving Kuwait. Now, with everything that they said, I can relate to it because there were so many different ways of communicating. When it talked about those Blue Force trackers, like I said earlier, when we got those things, we were like, what the heck is this? And eventually, once we started learning how to use it and they actually worked, we saw the capabilities and the things that you were able to do with these pieces of gear that were new to us. But like any hard-headed Marine or any service member, we're not really as excited to change as many people might think. We want to keep doing things the way we were doing it for years and years because it's not broken. Why the heck fix it? But with all this new technology and the mentality of the way the Marines are now coming into the Marine Corps, not only were they actually smarter with all technology and everything that was out there, but they would be able to make things easier to ensure that the communication was going to be maintained throughout all those CPs or command posts that were out there. And if any of the commanders had to move from one to another, they would not lack communications when they got there. They'd still be able to use their emails and be able to secure all those information that they needed to send back up there. Now, all this stuff with the uranium phones and stuff like that, I knew that our battalion had one, as far as I knew. I don't know if, if every battery or, or the commander in each battery had one. That I never knew. But I do know that the battalion commander did have one, and that eventually I was able to use it once to make a phone call back home. And that one time that I actually was able to use it, nobody was home, nobody answered the phone. <laughs> so it really didn't make a difference. But... As you can see, they're using all these different things and different tactics that are being put into place to allow the division to understand and see how the command and control is going to be maintained once they get into country. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about personnel issues, assigning each individual troop to certain tasks, 
So what's that actually going to take? So join us next week as we go ahead and continue on with our reading of the first Marine division in Iraq of 2003. No greater friend, no worst enemy. Hero, Hero highlight. Corporal Anthony P. D'Amato awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously served with an assault company of 2nd Battalion, 22nd Marines, 5th Amphibious Corps on Ngibi Island, Hanewatak Atoll, Marshall Islands, on the night of 19 through 20 February 1944, while in a foxhole with two companions, he threw himself upon an enemy grenade. Absorbing the explosion in his body, he was instantly killed. Born 28 March of 1922 in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, he was educated in the elementary and high schools of Shenandoah prior to enlistment and was last employed as a truck driver. He enlisted in the Marine Corps on 8 January 1942. He went to Londonbury, North Island in May of that year. He distinguished himself during the first year of his enlistment, volunteering for special duty with a select invasion party that took part in the North African landings. He was advanced in rate for especially meritorious conduct and action while serving aboard ship at Arzio, Algeria, 8 November of 1942, when he landed with an assault wave entering the port from seaward and assisted in boarding and seizing vessels in the harbor as well as the seizure of the port. He returned to the United States in March of 1943, and three months later sailed for the Pacific duty. On 9 April 1945, the tiny mining community of Shindoa, Pennsylvania turned out an en masse to pay homage to Corporal D'Amato at the presentation ceremonies of the Medal of Honor. The presentation was made by Brigadier General M.C. Gregory, United States Marine Corps, in the Copper High School where Corporal D'Amato had been a student and was presented to his mother. Corporal D'Amato was initially buried in the temporary American cemetery of Kiran Islands and Marshall Islands. Later, his remains were re-entered into the National Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Quarterdeck. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Quarterdeck. Command and Control. That was the goal of the 1st Marine Division this week in our reading of our book. With the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no greater friend, no worst enemy. And what can I say? They were up to date in their technology. Hello, Iridium phones, cell phones, satellite phones, those things. The actual Blue Force tracker. <laughs> A combat laptop that allowed you to send text messages to other vehicles while you were driving around in the combat environment. I mean, they took advantage of everything that was being put up to date as far as with all the technology going on as well as they took advantage of what the new Marines that were now coming into the Marine Corps were used to. They're used to being on computers. They're used to texting, chatting, all those things. And the division did not miss a beat because they decided to jump on board with that. Even though it was last minute, they got it in there. They were able to train the Marines on it and they were able to get used. And so it allowed that to be able to actually work. Next week in our reading, we're going to take a look at actual personnel issues. How are this division going to assign the troops to whatever tasks they're going to be assigned to actually do? And let's not forget about our hero highlights. We took a look at this week and talked about our Medal of Honor recipient, Corporal Anthony Peter D'Amato, 
and what he did to earn himself that Congressional Medal of Honor. Another great outstanding Marine that decided to jump on a grenade to save his fellow Marines that were around him. Next week, we'll look into the Medal of Honor recipient of Major General James Lewis Day of the United States Marine Corps, and we'll see what his story was and what he did to allow himself to earn the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's already the 26th of January, and our month is getting ready to close to come to an end. And man, time is flying already. Somebody please slow down the time, because before we know it, it's already going to be 2024, and this year is going to fly the hell by. Until next week, enjoy your field day. Get those nasty rooms in the barracks and everywhere clean. Clean your rooms so that way you pass inspection tomorrow and are able to secure early on Friday morning. So until next week... This is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.